0: Happy Saturday, everybody. This week, we have an episode coming up on the show that's connected to Charles Dickens. And we specifically mentioned that he went on a tour of the United States. He also went to Canada on that tour. He was really treated like a celebrity. He did not come home with a lot of money to show for any of it. And so since that came up in this forthcoming new episode, we thought we would share the previous episode that we conveniently already had about that tour. And this episode is from previous hosts, Sarah and Dublina. It originally published back in March of 2012. Enjoy. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy, And
1: I'm Dablina Chakraborty.
0: And lately we've been on a bit of a literary bent, covering everybody from the new-to-us Ottoman travel writer Evliya Chelebi to old British literature friends like the Brontes or the Brownings. But there's one name that keeps popping up, and that's Charles Dickens. And of course, he's a natural when you're already thinking about the likes of the Brontes because he's a contemporary. They're uh, both staples of any literature class. But Dickens also also fits in with Chelaby, albeit in a lesser known kind of way. He was also a travel writer. And of course, Dickens is best known for dramatizing the cruel life of London slums and finding comedy in Victorian hypocrisy. I'm sure most of you have read some Dickens along the way. He also wrote essays and he covered parliamentary news and produced travel logs, including a very memorable
1: account of his first trip to the United States and Canada. And since 2012 marks the two 200th anniversary of Dickens' birth, we'll be focusing on a few aspects of his life over the next couple weeks, but this seemed like a natural place to start. For one, Dickens' first American tour came early in his career, right when he achieved great fame, but not yet great wealth. Second, it shook him up both in his beliefs and in his writing. America was not all he had hoped, and that disillusionment is believed to have greatly affected his later, most famous works. And finally, it gives us a peek at something which in the 1840s was really just beginning in earnest, celebrity culture, with all the barber sells your hair trimmings <laughs> creepiness that's involved with that. And we'll that we'll explain that a little more later. <laughs> it's a little
0: tantalizing clue for what lies ahead. Yes. But first, we're going to give you a brief background on Charles Dickens. And today I think most people know about Dickens' childhood at the boot blacking factory, this really deeply scarring period during which his father was in debtor's prison and little Charles had to go to work. And retrospectively, of course, it's a critical experience for the man who went on to create characters like Joe and Oliver Twist or Tiny Tim. Even though I find this so interesting, his general public and even his own kids didn't know about that factory work or his father's prison time until after Dickens' death.
1: What made that period really horrifying was that Dickens had come out of a comfortable home. He was born February 7, 1812, and he grew up in Chatham, his father working for the Navy pay office. His earlier years were heavy on games, magic lantern shows, and performances of comic songs with his sister, sometimes even at a nearby tavern. He was educated and he had a large library at his disposal filled with titles like the Arabian Nights, Robinson Crusoe, and Don Quixote. So it was a very happy, comfortable
0: childhood. But as his father's fortune declined, the family moved to Camden Town, London, gave up educations for the children, I think, except for Dickens' older sister, who still had music lessons. And rock bottom finally came in 1824 with debtor's prison and factory work for by then 12-year-old Charles. And he later wrote of this of this time and the shock of such a huge change in his circumstances, quote, I felt my early hopes of growing up to be a learned and distinguished man crushed in my breast. So after a, spell, you know, about nine or 10 months working in the factory. He continued to work there, unfortunately, after his father got out of debtor's prison. But after the family got back on its feet again, Dickens had a little bit more schooling. And at age 15, he went to work, this time as a solicitor's clerk. It wasn't the most interesting work, but at least it gave him a little bit of legal background, which influenced some of his later novels. By 1828, though, he started picking up extra work as a freelance journalist. And by 1832, he was Taken on as a regular parliamentary reporter, and Dickens certainly could have spent his whole career as a journalist. He was popular. He was very good at it. But he was really itching to write more than just the news, and so he started publishing stories in 1833, and uh, writing under the name Boz, which was kind of a. Um, version of his brother's childhood nickname, he started contributing these street sketches to his paper in 1834. He had really been walking around London for most of his life, so he knew all types of people, he knew all neighborhoods, and he could paint them really vividly in these newspaper sketches.
1: And these popular vignettes caught the attention of the booksellers Edward Chapman and William Hall, who commissioned him to write text for a series of illustrations done by a popular artist of the day. But when the artist committed suicide, shortly after the project started, Dickens became the creative lead himself, shifting the focus to the text portion of it. The result was the name-making Pickwick Papers, a smash hit that had a run of 40,000 copies. And in his sudden success, Dickens signed up for a multitude of projects and stepped up as the editor of a new magazine. He'd also by this point married Catherine Hogarth and started a family. His hits came out one after another, serialized, of course, Oliver Twist, Nicholas Nickleby, The Old Curiosity Shop, and Barnaby Rudge. And Dickens still has a reputation of being a shockingly prodigious writer. Some say maybe too much so. But even he was getting worn down by doing so much work. So with all of these post-Pickwick promises wrapped up by the early 1840s, he talked to his publishers and talked them into giving him a lengthy sabbatical, paid in advance on future work. But what was he going to do with this really long vacation? Travel, of course. And Dickens really only had one destination
0: in mind. That was America, land of liberty, this nation unburdened by a bunch of old world hang ups, or so Dickens hoped. He very much hoped, as we're going to see later. He wanted to see the great frontier. He wanted to see the democratic experiment and Niagara Falls, all the things you can kind of imagine. Somebody like Dickens wanting to, to see in person. But Dickens being Dickens, he also wanted to see the factories and prisons and madhouses. Having spent so much of his time investigating his own country's institutions, he was really ready to see other examples around the world, see what other people were up to. Catherine, of course, wasn't too keen on leaving their four kids by this point. Eventually they had ten, but it was decided that they would tour the United States and Canada for just six months. Still a pretty Pretty long time, but they would leave their kids with the actor William McCready, who was a good family friend. And to spice up the deal for the publishers, who were, of course, paying in advance for this long sabbatical, Dickens would still be working the whole time. And upon his return, he'd have a publishable notebook filled with all of his travel impressions. It turned out to be a pretty fateful decision.
1: So January 3rd, 1842, a 29-year-old Dickens left Liverpool in the steamship Britannia with Catherine and her maid Anne. And brown. It was about the worst start you could possibly imagine, though. They were seasick. The cabin was so tiny and cramped that he joked that their luggage had about as much of a chance of fitting in the door as a giraffe had of getting into a flower pot. And the weather was bad actually some of the worst weather that had been around in years. They probably
0: spent most of the trip thinking that they were going to capsize. So not very fun. They finally landed in Nova Scotia and then went right on to Boston, which was the first stop of the trip. And they got there January 22nd. And really, at first, Dickens was in heaven. He supposedly would tear through the Boston snow, reading off shop signs. He just loved everything he saw. But that elation didn't last very long. And one problem was being Dickens, who was of course an incredibly famous and kind of surprisingly recognizable celebrity in the United States.
1: Though maybe it's not too surprising. Dickens was known as an eccentric dresser, particularly in his youth. One Massachusetts onlooker called him a genteel rowdy. So once he got pointed out,
0: maybe you'd know, oh, that's Dickens. Because he's wearing those crazy clothes. Um, As little as half a century earlier, though, authors hadn't really been very famous as individuals, at least. At least not in a stop and stare at them kind of way. They were known mostly for their work. But with better dissemination of news, more gossip spreading around I mean, think of our um, old, very old by now, Lord Byron episode. These famous personalities, whether they were authors or actors or singers, started to get as big as anything they were producing. They started to become names and recognizable people. But for Dickens, fame wasn't a very fun thing to acquire.
1: No, I mean, it involved fancy parties and meeting icons, but it also involved a lot of the unpleasantness that we associate with modern-day celebrity culture, which shocked Dickens and really disturbed him. Crowds would follow him everywhere. He wrote, quote, "...if I turn into the street, I'm followed by a multitude, and I can't drink a glass of water without having 100 people looking down my throat when I open my mouth to swallow." On a boat stopover near Cleveland, he caught a, quote, party of gentlemen staring at his sleeping wife through a cabin window people on the docks would actually rip handfuls of fur from his coat when he came by. And then, I mean, if that's not bad enough, there
0: was this profit-driven side of a lot of the celebrity craze, too. The barber we mentioned, who tried to sell his hair. Tiffany's and company apparently made copies of a Dickens bust and offered those up for sale. I think this really bothered him, all of this money-making surrounding his name. And there's another aspect, though, of this fame that really bothered Dickens. And And that was wherever he went, whether it was Boston, Philadelphia, St. Louis, Washington, D.C., Richmond, New York City, Louisville, he met throngs of American fans who had obviously read and enjoyed his books. Okay, that's a good thing. Presumably, they've all been buying those books. Which was true. The only problem was that due to a lack of international copyright laws, Dickens knew he hadn't made any money off of these many fans since U.S. publishers could rip off his work. So on the one hand, he's seeing these busts of himself that people are trying to sell. He's knowing
1: he's not making any money for the actual books that have made him so famous in the first place. So he started peppering his speeches with dissatisfaction about the laws, but he wasn't oblivious. He didn't try to center his argument on his own personal finances. Instead, he chose to focus on the fact that all writers, Americans included, would benefit from a change and that at the end of the day, he'd, quote, rather have the affectionate regard of my fellow men as I would have heaps of gold, heaps and mines of gold.
0: So he tried to couch it in terms like, I'm just looking out for all writers. And gradually, though, that sort of Spin on his argument changed and got a little more intense. And while many average Americans would have agreed with him that there needed to be some kind of copyright changes, the press really pounced on this copyright obsession and declared it an indelicate, an improper avenue of public discussion, something that an honored guest shouldn't be going around talking to everybody about. And it was really the first strike in what became known as Dickens' quarrel with America, because as the press escalated things, so did Dickens.
1: Okay, but before we get into more particulars about what really is going to sound like the ultimate failed vacation, (laughs) it's worth noting that there were some high points to this. There were some good times. Sometimes being a celebrated author meant parties, as we mentioned, and mingling with fellow famous people. On Valentine's Day 1842, for example, Dickens was the guest of honor at one of the biggest parties to that date in New York City's Park Theater which was, according to Simon Watson, BBC Magazine, decorated with wreaths, paintings, and a bust of Dickens with an eagle soaring over his head. Which sounds
0: a little strange, and I can't help but wonder if that had anything to do with Dickens' request in his will that no monuments be <laughs> made of him, seeing that eagle flying over his head. And yeah, like you just mentioned, he also did get to meet a lot of fellow writers. He met Edgar Allan Poe, Washington Irving, Longfellow... Oliver Wendell Holmes, Harriet Beecher Stowe, a lot of folks who pop up in the podcast a lot, too. <laughs> and then he and Catherine had some fun, too. I mean, I know their later relationship is not characterized very well, so we're going to talk about it in another episode. But during this time, they seemed to have a pretty good time. They acted in a play together on the last leg of their trip, was a which was a— Jaunt through Canada that included a stop in Montreal. They really enjoyed that. And then, whenever he could, he broke away from all of the hubbub, all of the fancier people who were flocking around him to do what he liked to do most, which was just wander, tour all of these new towns he was visiting.
1: Yeah, he toured some of the worst neighborhoods, in fact, of New York City at the time, that was Five Points in the Bowery. He visited the mills at Lowell, Massachusetts, and was impressed to find a model industrial community a place where the women workers only stayed a few years. They lived in comfy boarding houses, and they had access to things like lecture series, a house-run periodical, and pianos. So it was really different from what he knew of similar situations in England. And I think that's an important thing to consider when we get
0: to some of the later particulars in this episode, that he did see some, he did compare some things in the United States positively compared to to what he saw in England.
1: He also toured prisons and insane asylums. It might seem a little strange to us now to do that on your vacation, but according to Natalie McKnight, a professor at Boston University interviewed on The World, it wasn't that weird for British writers to include investigative travel on their trips to the U.S.
0: There you go. Another major high point for Dickens was a trip to the Perkins Institute, which was well, and is, a school for the blind in Massachusetts. And I think it really speaks for Dickens' sincere interest in social issues that the top items on his 2C in the United States list were Niagara Falls, as we already mentioned, and then Laura Bridgman, who was a little girl, who was deafblind but had been educated with language. And Bridgman, who incidentally is believed to be the first deafblind person to be educated, had been written about by Perkins' director, Dr. Samuel Gridley Howe. And uh, he was the man who had also come up with the system for teaching her language in the first place. He had written this uh, publication, which proved pretty popular internationally, and Dickens had heard of it. So Dickens was so impressed by meeting Laura that he included quite a bit of of the meeting in his later published notes on America. And according to Jan Seymour Ford, who's a research librarian at Perkins, schools for people with disabilities were really just starting to, as she said, get traction during this time. And Dickens' work helped spread the word a little bit about what an institution like this could do for people who had disabilities. <laughs>
1: Dickens' work also led directly to the education of none other than Helen Keller. Decades after Dickens' visit, Keller's parents read his American notes and came across the story of Laura Bridgman. They went to Perkins and were connected with the graduate and teacher, who was Ann Sullivan, the miracle worker who taught Keller language. And this little sub
0: story here it was just so interesting to me. It makes me almost want to maybe do a, a future episode on Helen Keller. But it wasn't, of course, all pleasant trips like trips to Lowell, trips to Perkins for Dickens. He visited Washington, D.C. in March, and he met President John Tyler. He toured the Capitol. But <laughs> the trip was kind of defined by the disregard for spittoons that he witnessed <laughs> in the nation's capital. He later wrote, Washington may be called the headquarters of tobacco, tinctured saliva. The thing itself is an exaggeration of nastiness, which cannot be outdone. And he went on to warn readers that if they were going to tour the Capitol, and I mean the Capitol building, um, if in case they dropped anything, be careful not to pick it up without a gloved hands because you were probably going to run into a bunch of tobacco spit.
1: Other issues around the country involved what he saw as poor table manners, overheated homes, arrogance, hypocrisy, and a tendency towards violence that was illustrated by a gunfight between two kids who were using real guns. So it kind of ran the whole range from... the whole uh, ungloved hands to poor table manners and went up from there in severity. It
0: it got more serious than that, too. In Richmond, he saw slavery, which he was very outspoken against. And then some of it was just disappointment. In St. Louis, for instance, he was disappointed by a trip to see the Looking Glass Prairie, which is something he had really wanted to do, go see the prairie. Um, According to Professor Jerome Meckier, who's the author of Dickens and Innocent Abroad, quote, the longer Dickens rubbed shoulders with Americans, the more he realized that the Americans were simply not English enough. And Dickens himself wrote to his friend, McCready, who was taking care of his kids, this is not the republic I came to see. This is not the republic of my imagination. So (laughs) those are harsh words. But after he got home, Dickens did one better. He started polishing up his travel journals, and he ended up publishing them, as promised, as American Notes for General Circulation. Then he stepped it up again. The following year, he started a new book called Martin Chuzzlewit. And when the first issues weren't really selling that well, he decided to pack off his hero to America and included a lot of his own kind of experiences he had seen in the Midwest.
1: So both his travelogue and his novel painted quite an unflattering picture of America. Seems folks wouldn't have expected the man famous for tearing apart hypocrisies of British life to be entirely kind. But in fact, they had. New friends like Washington Irving were hurt, even outraged. People in New York burned copies of Martin Chuzzlewit. Papers denounced the American notes. The trip very likely changed Dickens, too. Some scholars see his work getting less optimistic after his American journey.
0: And I can kind of see this from several different perspectives. One, it does seem like people overreacted quite a bit. The travel notes do include kind of unfavorable comparisons to British things. You know, we were talking about the Lowell Lowell factories and how It's England that comes across as worse in that situation. There's a lot of stuff like that. But, um, If people were overreacting a bit, well, then maybe also Dickens kind of had unrealistic expectations. If you go into a trip and your expectations are that it will be a land of innocent people where everything's perfect, you know, kind of a utopia, it seemed he was expecting, you're probably going to be a little bit disappointed. Yeah. Especially if people are ripping fur out of your coat.
1: That's true. So it's not that any of this really affected Dickens' popularity as an author in the U.S., More than 20 years later, Dickens, who by this point had multiple households to support, and that's just a hint for the next podcast Mm, we're going to come up with, he decided it might be time to revisit America, and this time as a part of his smash lecture series, in which he'd act rather than read portions of his own works from a special gaslit lectern. So after sending a reconnaissance scout on ahead, he arrived in Boston in mid-November of 1867 during his Northeastern tour, quite a few things happened. He met Mark Twain. Or Mark Twain saw
0: him. And of course, Mark Twain is also known for his his public readings, which were apparently just as good as Dickens.
1: And a 12-year-old girl chatted with him on a train, telling him that she'd read all his books, but skipped the, quote, lengthy and dull parts. <laughs> and she, in fact, grew up to write Rebecca of Sunnybrook
0: Farms. So a popular children's book there. And then Dr. Samuel Gridley Howe of Perkins, who we mentioned, contacted Dickens about publishing the old Curiosity Shop in Braille, and Dickens actually not only gave his approval, he put up $1,700 to have 250 copies printed, which were in turn distributed to all of the blind schools in America, something I thought was pretty cool. The lectures themselves were a huge hit. I mean, of course, that was why he was back in the United States in the first place. He made 19,000 pounds, and many folks, couldn't remember the first tour, so there weren't any hard feelings there. And even the press took Dickens' return as a sign of goodwill. For instance, the New York Tribune wrote Dickens' second coming was needed to disperse every cloud and every doubt and to place his name undimmed in the silver sunshine of American admiration. Kind of an overblown <laughs> welcome <laughs> welcome back, Dickens.
1: And Dickens himself felt differently, too. In his farewell speech, he spoke of the, quote, gigantic changes he'd seen in the country, changes moral, changes physical, changes in the amount of land subdued and peopled, changes in the rise of vast new cities, changes in the growth of older cities almost out of recognition, changes in the graces and amenities of life, changes in the press without whose advancement no advancement can take place anywhere. And he asked that the statement be added to every copy of American Notes and Martin Chuzzlewit, and it still is there today. Kind
0: of, I take it back. You guys have made some improvement. <laughs> nice job. Yeah. Here we go. Um, so I think it was really interesting to learn about an author so associated with England, or really so associated with London, in a different context, see him out of his element a little bit. That was what appealed to me about the story.
1: Yeah, I think in a way, it's actually quite a testament to travel itself, that you can go abroad and it opens your eyes and you just see things in a different way. I mean, he obviously, it didn't work out so well the first time (laughs) because he had a bad experience. He was disappointed. And like you said, that was probably equal parts his fault and, you know, the fault of what he saw. Spitting on the floor. (laughs) Exactly, of people spitting tobacco on the floor. But when he came back the next time, it seemed like he sort of had a different point of view. About well, and it. he
0: had definitely learned kind of a lesson about mm-hmm. maybe being careful when you're traveling to keep some of your opinions personal,
1: <laughs> <laughs> although it's kind of nice to have that honesty. I'm too. glad he's looking back out. on it now, yeah.